We're starting from the very top of the Amad. So in the previous Amad, we had Rami Barachama. Rami Barachama was talking about Remember, a Gazan steals something. So if he, just Yish alone happens, the owner despairs of getting it back. So that itself does not necessarily mean that the Gazan becomes the owner. We saw that our mission does not hold that way. But what if subsequently he sells it to somebody else, someone else buys it? So that's Yish coupled with the fact of Shina Rishos. So that third party who bought it uh, was Kona the Chayfetz. He doesn't have to give it back. Of course, the Gazan, the Halacha will be, has to pay back cash value of what he stole. But in terms of the Chayfetz itself, the item itself, so the, the third party was Kona with Yish and Shina Rishos. The Gemara discussed, what about inheriting something? If you inherit property, is that a Shino Rishos? On the one hand, it comes naturally. On the other hand, it is a different domain. So that was a dispute. So Rami Barchama was, th- was talking about this. He held it was approved from yesterday's Mishnah that, 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 that it is considered a Shino Rishos. But he wanted to learn up the case in the Mishnah that a robber dies and he leaves the robbed item to the children. They inherit it. So we say that they don't have to return it. And Rami Barchama held that, that was even if the Chayfetz was intact. And the Pshah was, it was after Yish and so he proved yesterday that inheriting something is Shina Rishos. So now the Gemara says, he teaches Rami Rachama's statement that inheriting something is Shina Rishos on a totally different context. The Brayso says, we're talking about the halachas that if you lend on, ent- in, on interest, the halacha is that you have to pay it back. So we're going to see today, there are different ways on to understand that. But initially, one approach is that you have to return the money. It's kind of like stealing. The Torah says you can't take interest, and now I take interest, even though it was given willingly by the borrower, if the Torah allowed it. So it's kind of like stealing. So in the halachas, you have to give it back. So what happens if a father takes ribbons and then he dies and he leaves the interest for the children. The father dies and leaves money that was taken as interest. The children could know that it's interest. They don't have to get they don't have to give it back. So what's the shot? Must be because we view a Yish and Shina Rishos on the money. The, the borrower is despaired on getting it back, give it back willingly. And the Shina Rishos, that now it is by a third party. And we see that Yish and Shina Rishos is going to. This is considered a valid Shina Rishos. Even though they didn't buy it, they just inherit the money from the creditor. But we still say that that's a change in the domain and therefore they acquire it. So even if the money had not been spent, they wouldn't have to return it to the borrower. Really, I could tell you, inheriting something is not like buying it. It doesn't constitute a legal of Shina Rishos. If we'd be talking about a Gazan who has it in his Rishos, he would have to return it. It's different here by interest payments. Why? So Torah says, don't take interest. And then what does it go on in the Pasuk to say? Your brother will live with you. The source that you have to return Rebus is not simply that you're stealing, but it's rather from those words, and it's very possible that the reason it's not real stealing is because Misa was given willingly. So it's not a din to return ribbis simply that it is stealing. So as it comes from the new din of If so, what's the Torah saying? Return the interest so that he could live with you. Who had that mitzvah? The Torah gave that mitzvah only to the lender. He was the one who took the interest. The Torah gave him the mitzvah to return it to the interest to the borrower to help him live. But the Torah didn't instruct his sons. Meaning what the point is, is, is that here it's not a sugya of being kona, a stolen item with yish and shinu It's a different sugya. Returning ribbis is a whole different din and it comes from a different it's a new that requires you to return and that new was said only on the lender it was not said as something that could pass on to the children so now the Gemara says the one who did teach the one who did teach that Rami Rachel was said about the bride's about interest and certainly it applies to our Mishnah about that meaning 
it, it would make a lot more sense as we spoke about yesterday that the plain reading of our Mishnah is where the Chavis is intact and uh, still we're saying that the Arshim of the robber don't have to return it. The one who taught it on the Mishnah says it was only on the Mishnah not on today's price. Like the price so by returning Rivis, everyone agrees that's not something about Yish and Shin Rishos. Returning Rivis is a different din of Achai Echicha Imach. Okay, so now the Gemara brings the price. So Tanarabanan, Hagoizo Machil as Banov. So this is very similar to what we started yesterday's discussion from the Mishnah. Someone steals something and then he feeds it to his children. Peturin Milashal. They're not liable to pay the owner for it. What's the shot? Because the, the, the object doesn't exist. Um, and therefore they they don't have to pay. Remember the kids it's not so simple exactly, but uh, they, they were not the ones who stole it, so they don't they don't have the din of returning the value the, the value of it. Uh, so they don't have to pay. Niach left him, he left it in front of them intact, so then it gets a little bit more complex. So it says in the Bible, if they're adults, they are liable to pay. So Rami Bar Rashi already will have, says, we'll have to say that here we're talking about that, that it wasn't Yish. If there was Yish, they would have acquired it. So well, Mistam, according to Rami Bar the Bar is talking about Kaidim Yish. Ketanim, if, the, if they're minors, they are potter from paying, even though it exists. That we don't take it away from Katanim. What's the shot? Because even though they have, they really have a din to return it, but you need to sue them in court in order to collect it. And the bride holds that minors cannot be sued in court. We're going to see today that that's really a machlokas tanom if minors can be sued in court. But this opinion holds if even though it's intact and it's it has to be returned at least according to Rambam Rachama, but they, the Katanim cannot be sued in court. They're not liable. If the gedolim said we don't know whatever cheshbonos our father made with you, meaning Rashi explains they're bringing up the possibility that maybe he did steal it and maybe he paid you off so yes we admit our father stole it but why are you saying we have to return it just because it's intact maybe there was a deal that our father made if we were the robber right it would be a fight between us we would duke it out but here it was about our father maybe our father made a deal with you after he stole it and he paid you and now really the chafis should be belonging to us so if they if they make such a claim Baturim, they are potter so the gemara doesn't doesn't buy that so easily because they claim we don't know they become potter how does that make any sense meaning if there's a certain just to understand a little bit better if there's a certain obligation in front of you that's a vada the father stole and now the chafis is sitting here and you're coming up with saying maybe maybe you don't know but maybe our father paid you off. That claim of maybe our father paid you off is not strong enough to assert a possibility that you don't owe the money back in face of a certain chiv that is in front of you. The chiv in front of you, we see that there is a rabda item sitting in front of you. Now you want to come and you want to assert a claim why it can be by you. If you don't, if you don't have a certainty to it, that certainly doesn't deflect doesn't deflect the obligation. So I'm a rabba. So very similar to Bar Vishema, which you're really asking your kasha, the we pass in love Bar Right? If someone says, money Someone says, you owe me money. He says, I'm not sure if I owe you money. We actually pass him potter. So what's the Gemara's question? So Achronim explained, but yeah, but that's all the pshad is. Because we don't see a vadechiyav. He comes and he makes a claim, money so he says, in your day, we still say Potter. But here we see a Vadechiv in front of us. Why? Because we see that, that Yenim's item that, was, that used to be his is now by here, and we know it was stolen. That was our facts. We know it was stolen. The question is only, oh, maybe my father made a deal with you to buy it. Okay, such a claim cannot Potter you. So, here the adult Yarshim are saying, we know that our father made a claim with you. Therefore, you don't have anything of, of yours that remains in his possession, and they become Potter. So, what the Gemara is switching is that they are sure that they do not owe him anything. Still, a in the Gemara, right? Because again, Lufanenu is a robbed item, but if, if they are asserting with a vada claim, they're coming to say, we know, our father told us, or we saw it, or we witnessed it, that he paid you off for the stolen item. So then in that case, then they, unless the guy can prove differently on some level, then, um, then they're not going to have to pay. 
Okay, continues another bride. So, Tanya, the Chalizah Machos Bon, if someone robs and he feeds it to his children, they don't have to pay. Again, to pay, Dhamim only Gazim would have to pay. But the children wouldn't have to pay Dhamim. What if he left it in front of them and they consumed it? Whether they're adults or they are minors, they are liable to pay. So, here, it's Mamash Apella. Why they why why they should be liable, and so really even on even on adults it should be schwer. But the Gemara just asked the best question to ask: would the minors be liable? If they shouldn't be any stronger than even if they damage someone's property. Imagine a cotton goes and eats someone else's fruit. He doesn't have to pay. He's a cotton. So 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 how could it be more liable than when they they take something that their father stole and ate it? How could it be? How could this price be saying they're liable to pay? This is what the price is really saying. If the father left in front of them intact and they didn't yet consume it so we changed that point they didn't yet consume it and the question is returning it intact whether they're adults or minors they are liable to return it so this we have to figure out why this doesn't relate to the makhluks of chitz and rami bar that way chitz as we spoke about someone who consumes stolen property um, but we still have to say over here that there was no yish in order to make sense of Rami Bar because according to Rami Bar if there was yish, it would be yish and shinish, they wouldn't have to give it back. So Akubanim, this brisa holds, we're going kadim yish or akar yish, if yishus yorish is lav grishus lokech, and therefore if it's intact, they have to give it back. So clearly the yashim don't have to pay for it if they consume it, but if they if it's intact, this price is saying they have to return it. Now, there's still another point though. Lamaisa, what about being sued? Right? Here it sounds like Katanim could be sued. We previously had a price that seemed to say even if it was intact, they're not they're part of from paying because we say Katanim can't be sued. The answer is that it's Machlokas Tanom, whether whether uh Katanim could be sued in court, and we're going to hit that Machlokas in just a little bit. All right, first the Gemara now talks about Yarshim who, in, who inherit here. Amar Let's say a father dies and he leaves a cow that he had borrowed. So let's understand a father had, let's say, I don't know, a six-month uh, term where he was borrowing something. That's a real valid Kenyan. In other words, if you have a Kenyan, you make an agreement, I'm going to borrow for six months, I'm going to borrow the cow. So during those six months, the, 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 the mashil, the real lender, the owner, can't go to the borrower and say, give it back to me. No, it, uh, you gave me a term of agreement of borrowing. So if the father dies in the middle of the term, so actually the interesting thing is that that right to use it is bequeathed to the Arshim. They are also allowed to use it all the days it was borrowed by the father. The father had a Kenyan on it for that amount of time. So that right to use it is inherited here by the Arshim. However, fascinating thing, normally what does the Torah say when you're borrowing something? You're chayav for anything that happens to it. Even if lightning strikes it and it dies, machmas and ones, you're liable to, re- to replace it. And the site is... Ashol accepts that liability. He's getting all the benefit. So therefore the Torah prescribes that he's accepting the liability for anything that will happen. Here, the children have the rights to use it, but they don't have the liability. Why? Because Lamai said they never agreed to the deal of making a Kenyan that we're going to accept the liability. So the rights that the father had to use, they do inherit. They continue to have those rights during the term. But the liability, the personal liability to, to pay back if something happens, bonus, that they do not, they do not have. What a chiddush. Let's say thought it was their father's cow, and therefore they made a mistake and they slaughtered it and they ate it. So here, we're dealing with a much greater thing. We're dealing with they went and they destroyed it. It's not an onus, they went and destroyed it. So do they have to pay? So on the one hand, they had no idea that it was somebody else's, right? On the other hand, you know, Adam Muad, right? A person responsible for his action. So here it seems that you're not treated like a regular mazik. Why not? Isn't Adam Muad Olam? The answer is if you don't even know that that's someone else's money, we don't say that a person has to pay in the laws of damages. You don't know that it's his money at all. However, if they benefited, they enjoyed from the meat, Mishalman Demi Basar Bazol, they do have to pay the owner of the value of the meat that would be sold at a cheaper rate, at two thirds the price. So this is a halacha. Even if you're not chayv as mazik, we saw this previously, you're chayv for nen. Then it means if I enjoy your property, I enjoy your stuff, even if I didn't damage it, I have to pay. I'm not chayv as a damager necessarily, but I have to pay for the hanah. So everyone will understand 
maybe I would have eaten something else. Otherwise, you can't say I had that. No, I have the full market value, but at least at two thirds of value, everyone would go buy the meat in the market and consume it. So therefore, that amount they have to pay. However, it says, it says Rafa, if their father left them real property, he left them houses, he left them land in the estate, then they are to pay for the borrowed animal from the property. So what is that going back on? Again, we had a ratio and we had a safe. The ratio says that they're allowed to use it, and then if an onus happens, they're potter. The safe says that they slaughter and eat it, they don't have to pay the full value, they only have to pay the amount that they benefited. Now, now we're saying a caveat, if there's real property, they have to pay. So, some say that that caveat is going back on the ratio. Some people say it's going back on the safe. Now the Gemara explains. What does that mean? If it would be going on the ratio, what would that mean? When is it true that we're potter for onsim? It's only true that we're potter for onsim if we don't, if we don't inherit anything from the father. But if we inherit real, real property... If they inherit real, Rav is qualifying. If they inherit real property, then even though they didn't, they're not personally liable because they didn't, they didn't borrow it. But the father's liability has a lien on his real property. So in a Hanami, you yourself didn't commit personal liability, but the father's property has a lien on it from the moment that he borrowed it to pay for any to pay for any um, onsim that would occur. So therefore, when the onus occurs, you have to pay from that real property. So it's a caveat on the ratio. Or you could teach it as a caveat on the safe. When is it true that if you slaughter it, you don't have to pay the full market value? That's only true if you didn't inherit real property. If you inherit real property, you have to pay. What's the shot? Because clobby that property, it's like you inherit what the father had. There's so many different ways of understanding it. It's not so easy to understand. Lamai said, you know, what's their obligation? They also inherited it. Some people say, because then we look at the father as being somewhat negligible. Meaning he should have told them that that thing is not my cow. It's actually someone who's borrowed. And if he didn't, we view the father as being negligent. And we say that the father's property has to pay the muckum, the father for that negligence when the kids now come out they have to pay has to pay the full market value so there's really a difference between teaching it on the ratio and teaching it on the safe one and now the Gemara speaks that out if you say that in the ratio you're chive if you left real property you're chive to pay for the onus and the real property certainly on the safe one they slaughtered it they would be chive to pay the full market value from the property and that and and and, that, and also according to this approach, Rava disagrees with Rapapa. Rapapa is something we're going to learn about in the future, which is a basic question. When does a show become chayv bones? And Rapapa says only only at the time that the onus occurs. Meaning, according to Rapapa, there would be no lien on the property that existed from the time that he borrowed. The lien on the property to pay for the onus would only come when the onus occurs. So then it would be a dispute because if you're holding, we're, we're teaching on the ratio. It's coming to say the opposite that the lien on the property that the father had existed as soon as he borrowed it. We'll see Rav Papa in just a second. The one who teaches on the Seifa, it's only on the Seifa, Rachel low, not on the ratio of Ainu to Rav Papa. It's because of what Rav Papa said, that the lien does not exist from the time that you borrow it. It is only there, it is only there from the time that the onus occurs. I'm Rav Papa. Let's say somebody stole a cow before Shabbos and then he slaughters it on Shabbos. He's chayv to pay Dalvei. What's the shot? Isn't there Kimle Bidrabimine? So let's just understand. There's no Rabba holds, Rabba holds as well. There's no Kimle Bidrabimine on a Knas. So on the extra payments, there's no, there's no, there's no, there's no Kimle Bidrabimine because, because they're, they're Knasos. And, and, and the Chi of Geneva for the Karen was already there before. So Friday's Chi of Geneva comes on Shabbos. So before, let's say he stole it on Friday. He's already Chi to pay back the principal. So then when he, when he sold it on Shabbos, there's no Kimli Dramini on the fine. However, Let's say someone had a borrowed cow and now he slaughters on Shabbos Potter. He's totally Potter. Why? He wasn't chai for the principal yet. He's only going to be chai for the principal when it gets slaughtered. And since he's only going to be Shabbos when he slaughters it, so you have Kimlev Dramine. So when I steal something before Shabbos, I'm liable to the Karen before, and then I slaughter on Shabbos. I'm chai for slaughtering on Shabbos, so Kimlev Dramine on the Kanas. But when I borrow something and I slaughter on Shabbos, the first liability comes at what moment? On Shabbos when I slaughter it. So it's simultaneously Chi of Shabbos. 
Shabbos and the Chiyah payment coming together. So, so therefore, Kim Lidramini says you don't have to pay at all. So what do we see that Rapapa holds? Rapapa holds that when a borrower takes something, when is the moment of liability? Not in the moment that he takes it, but rather in the moment that the ones occurs. That's his whole point. Simultaneously, I'm becoming Chayev when I slaughter it. Had it been the way the Man Demasa was teaching it, no, we see a very different idea that when you borrow something, you're liable. There's liability right away, not potential theoretical liability. There's liability right then to pay back. Happens to be if it would be intact, I can just give it intact. But the liability to pay was really there initially. If I would hold like that, there wouldn't be Kim Levi because I'm Chayev already to pay the Karen as soon as I took it, as soon as I borrowed it. So we see here in the Gemara, there's a machlekes, unbelievable dispute about how to look at a borrower. Here, this put this in your pocket here. A borrower has to pay if an onus happens. But when does he become obligated to pay? That one approach is what the Gemara Papa favors. You're, you become Chayev to pay when the onus occurs. That when the onus occurs, you become liable. The other approach is, no, you're liable right away for taking it. Even though you didn't do anything wrong yet, there's a liability to pay. Happens to be, if the thing is intact, you can still give the thing. And therefore, the nafkamina would be Kim of if you slaughter on Javis. And also, this case, where the children take it and they didn't commit to li- the liability, but they inherit assets from their father, could you say that the shibud, uh, the lien, was really there from the time that he had borrowed it originally? All right. Now, Tanar Rabban, I'm going to get more into the, the price that teaches about someone who steals and leaves it to the kids. He should return what he stole. Why does it say that he stole? Whoever, just say, return the stolen thing. Means you return it only when it is, when he, when he wrapped it. Meaning, if it's no longer around, he's not liable. Someone who steals and he feeds it to his children, they don't have to pay. If it no longer existed and they're not the ones who stole it, they don't have any liability. But if he left it in front of them intact, and even if they're kids, they're liable to give it back. Again, we're talking about according to Rami Racham. So this opinion, the Tanakhama holds, that Ketanim could be sued in court. The name of Sohos is No, if they're adults, they could be sued in court, they're liable to return it. But if they're minors, they're not liable. So this is what we referenced before, that there's a dispute between the Tanaim. The Simchos holds Ketanim cannot be sued in court. Even if it's intact, they can't be brought to court to have to return it. Whereas the, the, the Tanakhama holds that Ketanim could be uh, found sued in court, open, clear thing. You know, you, it's a stolen item that's by them. They would have to give it even though they're Ketanim. So now the Gemara shows us a story where this came to a Machlokas if Ketanim could be sued in court. There was a minor son of Rabbi Yirmiya's Chamua. Chamua is a father in law. So Rabbi Yirmiya had a father in law, and his son, the father in law's son, he closed the door of his father's house in front of Rabbi Yirmiya. So meaning, basically, Rabbi Yirmiya is the son-in-law here. Rabbi Yirmiya wanted to enter the house um, and, and after the father-in-law died. And the son, there was a minor son who wouldn't let him come and take it. Now, obviously, Rabbi Yirmiya is the son-in-law. The son-in-law doesn't inherit. But Rabbi Yirmiya had a claim, whatever, that his father-in-law gave him the house as a gift. Yeah, give it to him as a gift. So he was going to the house. The problem is there was a minor son, maybe it was called it his brother-in-law, who was around, the minor little brother-in-law. He's not letting him in the house. So I saw the coming to Rabavin. We came to Rabavin to have the case tried. So Amar Rabavin said, Shalot Tevei, he's claiming that which is his. In other words, we know that it belonged to the father-in-law. And since now this boy is the natural Yorish, all he's doing is he's acting like a Yorish. He's not doing anything wrong. I'll show witnesses that will show that I had a chazak on the house when the father was alive. I lived there for a bunch of years and the father didn't say anything, meaning I can prove to you that the father gave it to me as a gift. It will be proven from the fact that I was there for years before the father died. Now the minor son is acting wrongly, Rabbi Yirmeh is claiming. So Amalei, Rabbi Yirmeh said, Can we accept witnesses without the presence 
of the defendant. In other words, there's a general halacha. If you're accepting witnesses in court that are going to hurt a defendant, the defendant has to be present. So if that's true, we can't do that. And therefore, the minor is, is basically absent, right? We can't bring him to court. We can't sue a minor in court. So if the minor is absent, we can't accept your aid, and we can't therefore afford you the house. Maybe you're telling the truth, maybe not, but you're going to have to wait until the kid grows up in order to get him out of the house. So he said back below, we don't accept testimony against a minor. What did the price of teach? That if the, you have children of a robber, as long as the item is intact, even if they're tanim, they have to pay. What's the shot? The minor could be compelled to return it that it's not his. Clearly, we could bring him to court. So I'm said, We just show in the rice as machlokas in the tanim. So some simchos right there said the minor cannot be sued. So I'm just saying, like simchos. Amr, Yimri said, What you have to go and do like simchos' opinion to, to take away my mansion? Right? He's upset. He's saying, Very good. I understand there's an opinion of simchos you can't sue a minor, but there's an opinion of the Tanakhama that you could. So why are you going like simchos and, and go like the Rabbanan? Says the Gemara, Meanwhile, Ilgal Milsa, the, the matter got out. It came in front of the in front of, in front of Rabbi Vo. Amar, he said, Didn't you hear what Rabbi Yosef said? The name of Rabbi Yosef. Let's say a miner takes his slaves. He goes in someone else's field and he says, "I claim that this such a thing is mine." Pretty amazing, right? He he, he basically claims that he inherits that he inherited the field and really we perceive it as being somebody else's field that he's doing this so what do we say hey we can't try a kid until he gets older no we don't say that we don't say well we can't do anything with he's still a kid let's just let him squat and stay in the field and only when he turns to an adult we'll deal with him we don't do that rather we take the property right away if he reaches becomes adult and he can bring witnesses and he talk as proof that it is then we'll deal with him but we see he's a kid we just chuck him out we throw him out so here do we what do we see that that the minor could be compelled to return property is not his so if you case as well so so if the court would be satisfied with the evidence that it was really Rebirmias, then we should be allowed to throw out the kid. What's the big deal? So the Gemara says, they're not comparable. In Rav Oshia's case, we're taking the field away from the minor because he doesn't have a chazaka based upon the ownership of the father. In front of us, we thought the field was somebody else's. If you'd be able to bring evidence, then we'd be allowed to keep it. But since he's still a kid and he's not doing anything, he's not trying his garces, so in front of us, we see him not the owner and therefore we chalk him as is. Here and with the case where Rebirmia and his minor brother-in-law the opposite. We know of the of the house before anything to be to belong to the father, and now this is this this is a minor yorish of the father. Rabbi Yirmiyah is really the one who's changing our perception and saying, "Well, I'll bring proof that I that I." Um that, I, that it, was, it was given to me as a gift. So Rabbi Yirmi is really the one changing our perception. So if Rabbi Yirmi is the one who's changing our perception, so then the opposite. We're not going to try the case while the, while the kid is still a kid. Rabbi Yirmi will have to wait until the kid grows up. So the Mars Tongas really depends on the situation. Not so simple. Whether or not uh, you sue a kid uh, while he's still a child. If a situation where the kid is changing the perception in front of us, we just throw him out right away. But if the fakarat, someone's trying to go up against the kid and, and, and the perception in front of us is that it is the kid's, then we will make the person wait until later. All right, now the Gemara gets into that. There's more of it. Okay, we just talked about the specifics by kids, but remember, there's really more of a broader question first, which is, can you bring Adim not in the presence of the Baldover? In other words, when Adim are going to hurt a defendant and he's not there, can, can the court try the case? We could accept testimony even in the absence of the defendant 
So Taiba Rabbi Yochanan, Rabbi Yochanan was didn't believe this. Can we do this? So the Gemara explains. Rabbi Yochanan receives from him from Rabbi Yochanan that there are only in extenuating circumstances we could do it. What are the extenuating circumstances? Let's say he is ill. Who is ill? The plaintiff. He might die, and he's nervous that his yarshim, who don't know the case, will not be able to provide the right testimony. So it's it's pressing that the plaintiff is able to bring his witnesses now. If it's pressing for the plaintiff to bring his witnesses now, then we'll accept it, even though the defendant is not there. Or maybe the witnesses are. Maybe the witnesses are only here temporarily. They're trying to go on a business trip overseas for an undisclosed amount of time for a long time. So therefore, so therefore, where in pressing circumstances we can listen even when the defendant is not there, but generally we don't accept witnesses when the defendant is not there. Furthermore, this is only true if the, if the court summons the defendant and he doesn't come. We have to give him a chance to show up. We have to, we have, we have to summon him. Only if he then doesn't come, and in those extending circumstances, can we do it. So generally, the rule is that we won't accept, except for those strange circumstances. And the Gemara, our other people rule here, we could accept witnesses where the, where the Baal Din is not there. I heard it was explained by Shmuel that this is only on the possible of Adina, where the court had already opened the case, meaning they had already made their claims in front of the court. It's an open court case. And in, in, moreover, they summoned the defendant, and he hadn't come. In other words, once the trial has begun, Shmuel Shita is that they could summon the defendant at any point to hear the testimony, even if somebody, they're not the extenuating circumstances that we spoke about before. I will love if they didn't open the case. The defendant can always say, I know basically, I want to go to a different court. I want to go to the high court in Eretz Yisrael. And the defendant, therefore, can have, can, has the right to refuse to have the case judge here before the local court. He has a right to say that he wants to go to the higher court in Yerushalayim. So they just explain, we don't necessarily, Shmuel doesn't necessarily disagree with Rabbi Yochan. Rabbi Yochan was saying in extenuating circumstances where the witnesses were sick or the plaintiff was ill, we could accept it. Shmuel accepts that. Shmuel is saying there's another case where once the court case was open and we summon the defendant, he doesn't come, then we might be able to do it otherwise. But in, but otherwise, the, the defendant can always say, I'm not showing up, I want to go to a better court. Says the more, even if they had opened the case, why can't he tell the plaintiff facing Zuna, I want to go to a better court? Why can't, maybe even in the middle, he should be able Able to say that if you have the right to demand that I want the court to be tried in a better court, you should even in the middle of the court case, you should have such a time. We're dealing with the case where the plaintiff has a letter from the higher court, so in other words, he has a letter from the higher court instructing the local court that they should judge the case. So, in such a case, in the middle of the case. We say that the defendant cannot insist that it should be that, that it should be taken. But before they open the case, the defendant could use his right, even if the plaintiff has a letter. It's really, really interesting what, the outcome here. So every defendant has a right to say, "I want to go to a better court," even if there's a letter from the better court that it could be tried locally. However, once the court case is open, he has no such right. And the Gemara is saying, in the middle of the court case, if we somebody doesn't show up, we might be allowed to try to take, accept the witnesses even without him being there. Amar Rav. We can certify a loan document without the borrower being there. So certifying loan documents, remember from Ksubis, is where, let's say there's a claim of forgery against the document. So we need to certify that the signatures are correct. So how do we certify it? So the witnesses who sign come in and say, those are our signatures. So the question is, could we accept those type of, could, could we accept those types of signatures even when the borrower, even when the borrower is, um, is not there. So Rob is saying that we could we could do that. The lender can bring the witnesses to the court and and, and have them say it's their signatures even without um, even without the borrower the borrower the borrower being there. Now the chiddush is that is that that might be considered extenuating circumstances. It also could be Taisa speaks out 
that Kim Shars is only Rabbanan. So you never wonder that someone's signature is a forgery. It's only Rabbanan to require certification. Maybe that's why the Rabbanan were Makel and they said you could do it without the Bauer. No, you can't certify without the Bauer being there. What does the Pasuk say? If the ox, remember when he gores, so then the, 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 there's a testimony that's given against the owner in the presence of the owner that he didn't guard it. So that, you see, clearly it has to be there. The owner of the ox has to come and stand by his ox when the witnesses testify against it. So to hear, when the testimony is given, there is a din that the Baldavar has to be there. How do we pass? You could certify the loan document even without the power being there. Even if the power is in court and he screams, don't do it, it is forged, right? We don't listen to him. We can proceed as long as we're able to certify with witnesses, even if the witnesses are accepted without the defendant. But if the power said, give me time, I can bring my own witnesses and disqualify the document. So basically, in other words, the court in front of us certified the document, and they ordered the power to pay. But he claims, I can prove the document is false. I know you brought the witness certified, but I could bring evidence that it is false document. So if he makes such a tie knot, instead of forcing him to pay right away, we do grant him time. There is such an idea. There's some merit, some something we're hearing the claim that's some validity to it, and we do grant him the time instead of making him pay right away. It's like, you know, you can dispute the charge for a certain amount of time. He also, also if he comes by the end of the period, then he has come. In other words, we'll deal with the, with the witnesses. We'll hear it. He lost. So if he does doesn't come by that time. Says, "Give me thirty days." Thirty days comes. He's still not there. What do we do? We wait a Monday, a Thursday, and a Monday. In other words, we make the summons for him to appear in the court. That's when the court would, would meet on Monday and Thursday. Below Asa, and if he doesn't come, and then we write a bill of excommunication against him, and he is in excommunication for ninety days. Why? Because he didn't he didn't pay the debt, and they're waiting that time. Uh, we're going to see, you know, what, what, what's the shot here, what, what this time is for. For the first 30 days, we don't descend to property just to collect on our own. If we could say maybe he's busy borrowing the money in order to pay it. For the, mid, for the middle 30 days, we still don't go collect from his property. Maybe he didn't find any money to borrow, and therefore he's busy trying to sell some property to raise capital. The last 30 days, we still don't descend to his property. We could say that he does have a buyer for the property. He's trying to sell his property, but the buyer that he found is occupied getting money to pay for it. So we could see certain delays for up to three months. But low us with end is 90 days. Still, he didn't show up. Then we write an Adarchasa. An Adarchasa is like a, a document that allows the de- that allows the creditor to just go take it on his own. So that's, that's a last resort. It's like a collection agency where they just kind of come and take it. Says the Gemara, this whole Allah, all this applies where he still claims that he is coming. He still claims, I have witnesses who are going to show that uh, the whole loan document was wrong. If he stomp claims I'm not coming, he refuses to show up to the court without any reason. Then we would write that that Adachas are right away that it could be collected. That's just a blatant disregard for the court. Says the Gemara, all this is with a loan that there's a delay in the time. If we call them with respect to a deposit, we write it right away. Meaning by a deposit, he says, Ruben gave Shimon his thing to watch. So, so if we determine that Shimon had it, has it, and he's not giving it back, there's no delay. What do you mean? There's no funds to raise. There's no money to borrow. Nothing. Then we just right away uh, write out that collection. Even when we write the Amakarki, we make it effective that we could collect the defendant's land. We don't write that he could collect. 
his movable property. Again, this is all when the defendant is claiming that I will be able to bring bring proof to overturn the verdict. So then we're at least sympathetic that we don't take his movable property. Why? The lender might snatch it away and consume the movable property. When the borrower does bring witnesses to invalidate the loan document, he won't be able to, re, to retrieve his money. But if he has land, then we can collect the land. The land doesn't go anywhere. That's better. Then if the, in, the, in the event that the Bauer does overturn the verdict, then at least he'll just take back his land. So there's a little bit of sympathy that we say he can only collect from land. Says the Gemara it's not true. We don't write the warrant to collect movables. Even if he has land, um, what, what is the reason? We're always nervous that the land might deteriorate. Something will happen. We're nervous that the movable property will be consumed by the lender and that his land will deteriorate through through flooding. So therefore, he won't be able to get back that this that was uh, that, that was taken from him. Okay, says the Gemara further, if we write the document, we have to notify the borrower. The borrower. Even if he's, we give the defendant all these extensions, we don't write it until a messenger has notified him about it. However, this, that we make sure he's notified him, that's only if he's close by. If he's far away, low. we don't bother to notify him. If he's far away, but there are relatives, meaning there are relatives near the court who can inform him, or there are caverns that go back and forth to where he is. We could wait 12 months of the year for him until a caravan goes and comes back. In other words, we won't send our own messenger so far away, but we could wait up to a year for that. Who is the plaintiff? Wait 12 months before giving him the warrant to go seize himself. Until the caravan went back where the defendant was. Says the Gemara Velohi, it's not true. Really, we don't make... We don't wait a whole year for the defendant to appear. Why did Ravina in that case wait 12 months? It was a whole different idea. The, the plaintiff of Acha was a very powerful person. If he had the warrant in his hand, we would never be able to remove it. So therefore, we are more sympathetic because even if the bar would be able to get his witnesses and prove that the loan was false, how are we going to get away from the mafia, right? The mafia has got it. So therefore, it's very, very careful before handing over to a powerful person um, the, the, the the document that says he can take whatever he wants. In a regular case, we don't wait for the defendant. So just he goes on a, on, a, on, a, on a Tuesday and he notifies him. So in other words... The courts are on Monday and Thursday, so therefore the next this, the the the, the goes out the next day on a Tuesday. And he can come on a Wednesday, and then stand in court on a Thursday. So that's the distance, which is considered close. All right. Now the Gemara just discusses whether or not we believe the court messenger who that if he gave out the summons. Regarding a messenger, the court messenger, he returns from giving a summons, and he says that the, the defendant, I give it to the, you know the defendant, and he refusing to come. Immediately betray. We believe him as if he's two witnesses. In other words. There's no way the court messenger would lie, and we believe, in fact, that the defendant is not coming. That's only in regard to excommunicate him. That we, we, we'll, we'll assume that the guy is in a for not, for not for not showing up. We believe the court messenger. But in regard to writing the bill of excommunication against him, this is causing him a monetary loss. Because he has to pay for the sofa for writing the bill. The halacha is the person who is excommunicated. When we write the bill for it, he has to pay for it. He has to pay for the, 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 for, for the, for the, the fee to the sofa for writing it. So it's a loss of money that we're going to do for him now by, by creating the bill of excommunication. Then low. Then we don't rely on the testimony like two people. You need two actual witnesses to say that the defendant is refusing to come <coughs> because until then we say, you know, you're causing loss of money. You need absolutely witnesses. So a whole list of details and circumstances. But bottom line is there certainly is a power in the court 
even though we learned, generally we don't accept witnesses unless the defendant is there, there certainly is an idea about refusing to come, and then eventually when you find guilty about how long you have to pay, so on and so forth, until eventually it goes to the collection agency and times and sympathy and all the variables that we discussed.